As I mentioned, um, we're walking all the way through Matthew's gospel this year, and uh, we've been in Matthew for a few weeks now. And uh, in these first few weeks going through Matthew together, one of the things that has struck me the most uh, is how deliberate Matthew, the author of this book, is in emphasizing that Jesus really cares for us. Jesus is with us and Jesus cares. He experienced what we experienced. Jesus suffered as we suffer. We saw that already in the Christmas narratives, in the circumstances surrounding his birth, in his flight to Egypt with his family, in his growing up in the middle of nowhere, in Nazareth. The idea that kept coming to my mind this week as I was thinking about how much Jesus cares for us is the idea of bedside manner. All of us have been to doctors, I would imagine, who have a terrible bedside manner. They can cure us, perhaps. They can prescribe us the right medicine. But you get the dist- I'm sure none of our doctors are like this who are a part of this church. But you get the distinct sense that they could care less and just want to get you out of the office as fast as possible and bring the next patient in. Jesus had a great bedside manner. He's not just God's agent to cure us, but he also cares. Henri Nouwen put it this way. He wrote, what we often see and like to see is cure and change, but what we do not often see is care, the participation in the pain, the solidarity in the suffering, the sharing in the experience of brokenness. Cure without care is as dehumanizing as a gift given with a cold heart. I think what God wants us to hear again today is that Jesus doesn't just give us a cure. Jesus cares. He cares about you right now in all of the circumstances of your life. And that's actually what his baptism teaches us as well. That's our topic this morning. So when chapter two of Matthew ended, Jesus was a little boy living in Nowhereville, Nazareth, this obscure place in the north of Israel. And if this were a movie, at the end of chapter 2, the camera would have faded to black after chapter 2, and then a little byline would have shown up at the bottom of the screen that said, 25 years later, dot, dot, dot. And then the camera would have come back into focus with a different setting and different characters when you get to chapter three. Jonathan taught us last week that chapter three opens with John the the Baptist. Let's be honest. There's no way John was a Baptist. I mean, do we know John? He was definitely a Pentecostal. John the Pentecostal, and uh, he's in the South preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He's baptizing people. And, And John the Baptist, John the Pentecostal's ministry, as Jonathan taught us last week, was a preparatory ministry. We see in verse 11, He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So that's where we left off. And it's into this setting that Jesus, now a 30-year-old man approximately, arrives for baptism himself by John. And the first adult act 
of Jesus's life that Matthew records is this one. And it's so beautiful in how it continues to show us that Jesus doesn't just come to cure us. He comes to show us that he cares. Jesus very much loves you right here, right now. Let's walk through this text together and hear from the Spirit by looking at it in two parts. I want to show you first what Jesus' baptism tells us about him, and then second, what Jesus' baptism tells us about ourselves. First, what Jesus' baptism tells us about him. Perhaps the primary reason that Matthew and really all the other Gospels record Jesus' baptism is because of what it tells us about Jesus. Remember, this is the first thing We see the adult Jesus do. Up to now, he's been an infant in the Christmas story. And it's no small thing, by the way. Galilee, which is where Nazareth was located, Jesus' hometown is in the north, and where John is, is in the south. For Jesus to get to John would have been a 70-mile trek south to the Jordan. So for Jesus to go that far suggests a, a deliberate choice. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing and why. He's making an announcement about himself to the world here. So what's he teaching us? We see it in the interaction he has with John, verse 14 and 15. John sees Jesus approaching and he recognizes who Jesus is. Matthew doesn't tell us how John recognizes him. He just tells us that he does. He knows who Jesus is. And John, verse 14, tries to prevent Jesus. He says, I need to be baptized by you. And you come to me? What is going on here? John's saying, I need your spirit and fire baptism. You don't need my water baptism. What is the deal? Remember what Jonathan taught us last week. John the Baptist's baptism was one for repentance. That was the main idea. It was a way for the people to to confess their sins against God and to turn back to God in preparation for the Messiah's imminent arrival. And now Jesus shows up, presumably in repentance and confession, to be baptized. He doesn't have anything to repent of. That's what John's thinking. Why would he come to me? And so Jesus tells his friend, verse 15, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, these are Jesus's first words in Matthew, and they're a little bit enigmatic. Uh, What exactly is he saying? That word righteousness is the key. And in Matthew, we're going to see that word a lot, especially when we get to the Sermon on the Mount in a couple of weeks. And in Matthew, the word righteousness basically means to do the right thing. And so pretty much what Jesus is saying to John, his cousin and his friend is, listen, John, I understand your hesitation, but this is the right thing for us to do together. It's okay. So why is it the right thing for Jesus to submit to baptism? Here's why, okay? Don't miss this. Jesus wants to live a life that is 100% in solidarity with the rest of us, except to do it without any sin. Jesus knows he doesn't need to repent, but because the people are being baptized and because Jesus wants to identify with people, 
to experience everything we experience, he receives baptism too, knowing that this is something that pleases his father. Dale Bruner puts it this way. He says, quote, the first thing Jesus does for the human race is go down with it. Into the deep waters of repentance and baptism, Jesus' whole life will be like this. Here's the key. Jesus here is acting like a servant Messiah. The prophets, especially Isaiah, talked about when the Messiah comes, he will not come as many expect. In fact, he will be a suffering servant. He will come to fully identify with us. He will sympathize with us completely. Isaiah 53, 12 says, Jesus will be, as the Messiah, numbered among the transgressors. He wants to be 100% a part of the human race. He wants us to know that he knows what it's like to be us. When do you feel most a part of the human race? It's a little weird, a little random. But when I thought about that question this week, I thought about airport security. I mean, can you feel more human than being in the airport security line? You're being herded. Um, like cattle, you know, with all these random people. And uh, it's just this mass of people being ushered through the gate, all there, shoulder to shoulder, everyone looking at each other with probably more than mild irritation, a little bit awkwardly, taking off our belts, <laughs> taking off our shoes, everyone really hating everyone, you know, especially the guy who forgot to take his keys out or the lady who doesn't take her laptop out of her bag and it goes through and it slows everyone down. It's just, you go through it and you're like, we're all humans. This is humanity. That's what Jesus is, is getting at here. He's saying, I'm with you there in, in the airport security line. I'm just like you. I'm as engaged in all aspects of the human experience as you are. Christianity tells us this so centrally. The Son of God, the maker of the universe, the Lord and the King has come down to go through airport security with us. He got baptized in the dirty Jordan River shoulder to shoulder with all these other sinners to fulfill all righteousness, to act entirely as one of us, except without sin. Is that how you view God? I, I read this week about uh, Jose Mujica. In 2012, he was the president of Uruguay, and uh, he held a unique position as the president of Uruguay, the BBC called him the world's poorest president. And it's a common complaint, as we all know, that many politicians around the globe live in luxury while the masses they lead live in poverty. But Mojico did something different. He chose to identify with his people by living on a ramshackle farm located on a dirt road outside the capital city. And a reporter for the BBC News, 
went to his house and, and described his approach to Muhika's lowly residence. He said that laundry was strung outside the house and, and the water came from this dilapidated well in a yard that was overgrown with weeds. And, and there were two police officers and that's it, except for Manuela, his three-legged dog. Of course, it's a, a three-legged dog uh, keeping watch outside. And, and it was a very austere lifestyle that the reporter noticed. And it was made even more apparent by the fact that Mujica donated his salary, 95% of it, every month to charity, which led the BBC to label him the poorest president in the world in 2010. His annual personal wealth declaration, which is mandatory for officials in Uruguay, was $1,800, the value of his 1987 Volkswagen Beetle. So the article noted that Mojica doesn't have to live this way. Uruguay provides a luxurious presidential residence in its capital city of Montevideo. But Mojica has chosen to shun the privileges he has a right to enjoy so he can stand in solidarity with the people he serves. That's what Jesus wants us to see about himself in his baptism Jesus stands in solidarity with us. That's a transformative truth. Only the Christian faith tells us of a God who gets this close, this intimate because of love, because he cares. What does that mean for you now? It means that Jesus gets us. Have you seen those commercials? I love those commercials. Jesus knows what it is to be thirsty and and hungry. Jesus knows what it's like to be despised and to be rejected. He knows what it feels like to be scorned and shamed and embarrassed and misunderstood He knows what it's like to be falsely accused, to be left out to dry by your friends, to be suffocated, to be tortured, even to be murdered. Jesus knows what it's like to be lonely. Do you feel lonely ever? Jesus understands that. Jesus is in solidarity with you in the lowest moments because he's a great high priest, as Hebrews tells us. And our tendency is to feel Like the harder things get, the more isolated and alone we are. Our tendency is to feel like the harder things get in our lives, the more isolated and alone we are. But the gospel tells you otherwise. In Jesus, God draws close to the brokenhearted. He draws close to the hurting. God doesn't just lob pep talks to you from heaven. He can't bear to hold himself at a distance from you. His heart is too bound up with your heart. Jesus' baptism shows us that he is a God who is in close, full solidarity with his people, with you now. Jesus' baptism also, secondly, tells us something about ourselves. Look at what happens next. When he gets baptized, Matthew writes there in verse 16, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest on him. 
And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So it was an ordinary baptism, just like any other Jewish man being baptized by John until Jesus comes up out of the river. Then it became an extraordinarily unique moment. Now I titled this second point, What Jesus' baptism tells us about ourselves, which might strike you as odd, because on the surface, this is obviously telling us something else about Jesus, and it is, God here is declaring through his rending of the heavens and through the descent of the spirit and through the voice from heaven that the king, the Christ, is here. This also recalls Isaiah who in chapter 64 cried out to God, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That's exactly what God is doing right here. There's only two times in the whole gospels where God speaks from heaven. This is one of the times. And the other time is at Jesus's transfiguration a couple of years after this. And both times God says the exact same thing. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. God is saying to you in Jesus's baptism, here in this man is everything I want to say and reveal and do. And everything I want people to hear and see and believe. If you want to know anything about me, if you want to hear anything from me, if you want to please me, get together with him. Jesus is God's beloved son. God wants you to listen to Jesus. God wants you to obey Jesus. God wants you to know Jesus. It tells us something about Jesus. But listen, the story also tells us something about ourselves. In fact, it tells you the most important thing you could ever hear about yourself. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, If you have connected to him in faith, what God says here of Jesus, he also declares over you. Let me explain. Anyone who trusts in Jesus's work for them is completely linked to him. Their life is united to his life, so much so that the life he lived perfect and righteous and good is now your life. And and the death he died as a substitute, taking away our sin means that your old life, your old sinful person, your old way of being is just as dead as Jesus was when he stopped breathing on the cross. And, And really Jesus's baptism says something about the meaning of our baptisms. Our baptisms signify our union with, our connection to, our linking with Jesus. That's what Paul writes about. For example, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, he says, anyone who has been baptized into Christ has put on Christ. He says it even more clearly and thoroughly in Romans chapter 6. Listen to what Paul writes there. Do you not know? That all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So through our union with Jesus by faith signified in Christian baptism, the heart of our identity is forever altered. We are now, like Jesus... God's beloved sons and daughters with whom he is well pleased. We are that loved by the only God there is. If you're a parent, I think you can get a a picture of this. Even if you're not a parent, you can get this. The first time I saw my children, I mean, that's a new kind of love, isn't it? That erupts inside of you. If you're a parent, you really get that. Looking at your child, even if they don't like you very much, it still continues as a parent so far in my experience. <laughs> that, that, that you love them with, with a fierce love, with a wild love. There's nothing about it that's tame. You ever seen Taken? This is not in the notes, but I saw Taken this week. And uh, that's a movie about the guy whose daughter gets kidnapped and he has a very particular set of skills. And... Uh, His particular set of skills means he can go get his daughter back from these bad guys and there's nothing that's going to stop him. That's the kind of love that God the Father has for his children. Delete that from the live stream. Taken wasn't in the notes. That's how God beholds Jesus. Obviously, he says it here. He speaks that way about Jesus. He delights in his son. God looks at Jesus and feels overwhelming love. But the key is, because of our union with Christ, that's how God also beholds you. That's how God speaks about you. God delights in you. What Jesus' baptism teaches us about ourselves is that we share Jesus' identity. His identity is a beloved child of God. Now listen, listen. Our core value of core values is that the gospel changes everything. And this is what we mean by that. This is the gospel. God, out of his great grace and love, in Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection has made you his child. And you are more beloved than you can possibly imagine by God. And if you accept that and rest in that, it changes everything about your life. Some of you need to marinate, not all of us, need to marinate on different aspects of the gospel today as we reflect on this. Can I just press this question on you? Do you believe that you're as beloved by God the Father as Jesus is? Do you believe that you are really his child? Some of you are striving and working so hard to make God and others happy with you that you have little to no sense of inner peace. You have almost no security in your identity because fundamentally you believe that your relationship with God is grounded on what you do and not on what Jesus has done. You're like, imagine this, you're like someone who can't swim, getting thrown into a lake. And and there's a life vest thrown in right next to them. (laughs) But the people are, you're so freaked out 
that you're in the water, that you won't take hold of the life vest. You can't even see it because you're working so hard in a panicked and frenzied and busy way to try to swim yourself. And what you're doing is drowning yourself. God calls you to rest. Grab the life vest. It's right there. Your identity is freely given and can only be received by you. It can never be earned. And when you get that, you can experience a peace that you can't get anywhere else. Some of you aren't so much feeling a lack of peace or security. Some of you are scared to death of God. You're deeply afraid of him. Maybe that's tied to a, it's almost always, by the way, tied to a sense of guilt. Maybe it's also tied to your experiences of your own father or other people who have abused their authority over you, maybe. Maybe it's even tied to your Christian past. This is very common in a place like Texas. You became a Christian as a kid because you were scared to death of going to hell. You were scared to death that God was going to banish you there if you got into a car wreck and all you would see were flames consuming you. And, And there's still a small part of you that worries that when God thinks about you, He thinks about you with condemnation and judgment and you're scared to death of him. Your identity as a beloved child of God, knowing you're just as loved by God as Jesus is loved by God, roots out that fear. Perfect love casts out fear, 1 John says. Listen to theologian David Benner. He put it this way. God does not want us to stand back in fear. What he wants is reverential intimacy. He wants us close enough to him that we know his heart, close enough to hear his heartbeat. He wants to look into our eyes and he wants us to look into his. That's how beloved you are. You don't have to be afraid. And then some of you are skeptical that any of this is true at all. And I'm really, really glad that you're willing to listen to me if that's where you are. It might sound like a bait and switch to you. It's not how things work, you think. Well, you know what? You're right. You're right. It's not how things work. This kind of grace that God would make us his beloved by killing his own son, even though we hated God and ran from God, that's completely alien to the human psyche. But what if it's true? What if you were more loved than you ever did dream? What if there really is a God who made the world and made you and loves you so much that he just could not abide not having you with him for all eternity as his beloved? That's what Jesus Christ came to teach us. And if you connect to him, he proves that you really are God's child always and irrevocably. That's what he wants you to see in his baptism. Yes, he underwent death for you. Yes, he was raised to life for you. And yes, if you trust him, you're just as loved by God now and forever as he is. That's good news. Let's pray.